Okay. If no one has any questions, I'll just go right to our PowerPoint and kind of review what we've talked about uh, so far as far as attachment theory is concerned. So we went through uh, last Tuesday this, this idea and where attachment theory came from. It came from the idea that it was assumed for, for uh, a long time that the whole purpose behind the mother-child relationship was about sustenance, about feeding. And that was really the only thing the parent really needed to provide was just nourishment. And that would be the only reason to hold a baby close to one, to, to, to the mother or to the caregiver. And we saw through experiments dealing with um, uh, monkeys. And then later on, uh, we saw the, the horrific events of uh, orphanages in, in, in Slo Slovakia and, and um, more of the USSR type countries. Uh, where children were completely neglected um, of even having someone to hold them while they were being fed. And it had a lot of psychological consequences. And then we went on and we talked about, okay, we've proven that there's more to the mother-child bond. And we've gone on and shown that there's more to the father-child bond as well. And uh, we looked at these different type of attachment um, styles or types of attachment. And so uh, we found that there were secure, uh, anxious, anxious, ambivalent, and disorganized. And it seemed to all be based on uh, the early mother experiencing experience and the, how the mother treated the infant when they in their early years. Okay. Um, and then we 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 and then this is where we started. Now this is factors of attachment dealing with uh, children and, and dealing with that relationship. Um, and we know that it's a, it's a product of numerous factors. Uh, the first one being mother being sensitive and responsive to the child. Um, we found that um, uh, secure or insecure attachments, uh, we, we've looked at the father side of it and we see that fathers being sensitive is almost as important is also important to uh, having a child who has a very secure attachment style as well. Um, we, we, we were finding in a lot of areas, uh, we have a lot of generations who are being raised in fatherless homes and where they're not having access to a positive male figure, whether it be a boy or a girl. And without that, either that positive uh, male influence or having a father present, we find that um, uh, different maladaptive things are more likely. It's very predictive of things like criminal behavior, addiction, relationship failure, even domestic violence in a lot of ways has been predicted by uh, both males and females being ra ra raised in a fatherless or non-male role model um, uh, setting. Um, we also have found some different things with, with infants, uh, and infant temperament, uh, helps determine sensitivity of parental response. So there are some, uh, uh, I can tell you that there's extremes in this. There's some infants who need to be cuddled and coddled and, and, and because they have a very mild temperament. 
Uh, and then there's infants that are highly temperament that just don't like the cuddling and being responded to as much by the parent. And this is where the idea of uh, mothers being sensitive and responsive to the child's needs. Uh, because we have found that mothers uh, and fathers, we should put this in both uh, categories, who force a non kind of social child or a high temperament child into being uh, a cuddler uh, have end up with insecure attachment styles as we've seen when an infant is not responded to at all. Um, and so we, we, we see the dynamics of the parent, but we also see that temperament of the infant also plays a role in this relationship um, uh, with, with the parent. And we can see this in the sense of temperament with infants who are highly colic. Colic is uh, when infants cry excessively. Um, and we find that uh, this, this becomes frustrating for the parent but it's also frustrating for the infant. And so they can't really bond and find that relationship. And so we find that that's associated with insecure attachment. So we can see a numerous interactive uh, picture being drawn um, for these factors of attachment, okay? Um, We know that biology plays a role. We know that children who are more likely to have a, a high uh, secure attachment tend to have been exposed to higher levels of oxytocin. Then when we, we compare infants who were basically uh, raised in a neglectful environment where they don't get that mother infant, that father infant exposure to, to the oxytocin or to the biological aspects of um, being raised. Um, and we find that um, many who don't have that physical contact tend to develop more insecure type of attachment styles. We also see that culture plays a role. So uh, if we're talking about American and North European uh, countries, we see that there's an avoidant attachment is the most common in, in the insecure attack, uh, attachment category where they're just avoid intimacy in a sense. Uh, we see in Israel, Korea, and Japan, uh, more of an anxious, ambivalent, not sure what to do type of attachment style. And uh, a lot of times we can nail this down to two type of cultural um, uh, ways of existing, and that's on the line of what's called individualism versus collectivism. Individualism is a dominant cultural um, perspective in America, and it's measured high in America and North Europe, where focus is based on the individual, that the success, the failures are all because of the person. It has nothing to do with um, anyone else. No one else plays a role in one success or failure. Uh, versus when we look at Israel, Korea, and Japan, they have more of a collectivistic type of uh, culture, meaning that everything is based on the family. So if I fell, the family fails. If the family fails, I fell. And we can see why these two type of uh, um, um, uh, type of uh, 
um, insecure attachment styles happens in, in these types of environments. Because in, in an individualistic one, no one really matters. So there's an avoidant type of attachment. In a collectivistic society, one can always be anxious about whether or not they are serving their family or serving their community right. So we can see that type of attachment style as well. Um, and so how do these relate then to later relationships? Well, there is an association between an infant's attachment style and adults' ability to maintain a secure relationship in later life, but it's, it's not as simple as we think it is, okay? It's not a one-to-one -one association because there's two things that can potentially change a person's attachment style. One is new life circumstances. This can be positive or negative. So, uh, um, you know, on an extreme level, you, you know, an infant who has a secure attachment style and then was assaulted in later childhood or in adolescence in some way, whether it be sexually, physically, or emotionally, that can flip that secure attachment style to an insecure attachment style. And we also know through, uh, uh, and we'll get to this when we get to children and we talk about attachment disorders, uh, we can change insecure to secure attachment styles if it's done before the age of eight through some type of intervention, okay? Um, we know that uh, peer relationships in adolescence are actually the most predictive of later romantic relationships. So why do we say infant attachment styles are also predictive? And the reason is, is your attachment style in infancy is going to play a role in the peers you choose in later childhood and adolescence. So this is the, the, the road. Well, if, if we don't have any new circumstances that come along between infant attachment and later romantic attachment, is infant attachment um, paves the, the road to how a, a infant is going to relate with the world. Are they gonna do it in a secure way or an insecure way? And that is going to directly associate with the type of peers that child interacts with during their late childhood into adolescent years. And it is actually peer relationships then, that then directly associated with later romantic relationships, the way we see our friends in adolescence with each other and the way we interact with friends during adolescence is actually what's going to predict our later romantic relationships. And that's, that's kind of the road from infant attachment into adult attachment. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Assuming so, okay. Okay, so why do these attachment styles really um, tell us about who we, we, we can be around or what type of um, um, uh, relationships we'll get into? 
And it has to do with what ends up being what's called our internal working model of relationships. Um, so we know that the kids who have a secure attachment uh, feel like they can trust and rely on others, that they're lovable, capable, and significant because people have responded to them, and that their world is safe. They feel secure, as, as the term uh, uh, suggests. So they're more likely to go out and explore the world. They're more likely to be able to identify the difference between people who are not safe for them and people who are safe for them because they've experienced that. Um, unlike uh, when we look at these insecure attachment styles, we get children who are not really that well at identifying people who are safe for them. So a secure attachment style allows the child to see both sides. They can see who, who is healthy for them and who is not healthy for them. In the insecure attachment styles, uh, we find that children are able to see who's not healthy for them, but they're unable to see those people who are good for them and, and, and can help them out. And so, for example, with the anxious avoidant type, um, they see other people as unavailable and rejecting. They feel like they have to protect themselves because they can't rely on others. And they feel, if I deny my needs, I will be rejected. I do what is expected of me, or I will be rejected, or I will not be rejected. I take care of others and deny my own needs then I will be loved. So you can see this over investment um, where, where either they'll avoid relationships or they're very anxious about them because they're scared that they'll constantly do something wrong, okay? Anxious and ambivalent starts with others are unpredictable, sometimes loving and protective, sometimes hostile and rejecting. So if you remember last Tuesday, we went through that exercise of trust versus mistrust. And I gave the example of the non-responsive parent. And then when the parent does come in, they tend to be angry because the child is interrupting what they want to do. This is, this is what develops into that. They, they, they see people as very unpredictable and that sometimes they can be loving and sometimes they can be hostile. And so that creates a chaotic environment for the infant and one of the things we know about humans is we, we need to be able to predict our world or we feel very anxious about it. Um, so I don't know what is expected of me. So I'm always anxious and angry. I cannot explore. I might miss an opportunity to be loved and, affect, and have affection. If I can read others and get them to respond, I will get my needs met, okay? And then in the disorganized, disoriented type of situation, my caregiver at times seems overwhelming by, by me and at other times seems very angry with me. So again, that goes back to our example from last Tuesdays. So the internal working models are others are abusive. They're neglectful physically, emotionally, and sexually. So we avoid people. And I'm unable to get my needs met. I don't know how to protect myself. So this is the most extreme, really, of the different attachment styles, okay? 
All right. So that's that's attachment styles, and we see the similar pattern in adults. And I and I will say that because of life events and because of development, these attachment styles can change, and that's the good news. Uh, they can change be, based on life experience. They can change based on uh, education and, and learning about them. And so even if you're in one of those categories of the insecure, uh, the, the good news in this theory is that um, you they can be changed and, and you can, can become a secure individual despite any attachment style that occurred in infancy or early childhood. Um, so that's the good news about attachment theory. But what attachment theory really shows us is it shows us how development um, uh, and our interactions with those most important people, especially early in our life, can affect our adult intimate relationships. And that's really what attachment theory really tries to get at, is that development and experience with others is important because it creates these internal working models of who I will be attached to and who I won't be attached to. And, and as we see, it can create a lot of confusion. And if you can guess with a lot of the insecure patterns, that's where we get a lot of the relationship difficulties or choosing the wrong person, quote unquote, or um, um, being ambivalent to our partner's needs and those types of things. And also on our end, not fulfill, not thinking our needs are going to be met or fulfilled. So we look for those uh, evidence that they're not. Okay. Is there any questions about attachment theory? Quiet today. Okay. So let's go on, let's go back to uh, this slide. So we talked about attachment theory. And we show that several series have attracted attachment style from toddlerhood through adult and found attachment smiles can change over the life course, regardless of child's experience. And this is the one thing that I really want to take everyone to take away with attachment theory is that just even if you had a horrible childhood and you had parents who were non-responsive, um, that doesn't necessarily set how you'll relate to others throughout your life, that change is possible, okay? The next theory we wanna talk about, now this is a sociologist. Uh, so this is a sociological um, theory, meaning that it's, more based on uh, social levels and, and group level type of theory. And Iris Rees and his associates uh, came up with what he calls, uh, what, what Rees calls the wheel theory of love uh, that has generated quite a bit of uh, research. But what Rees says is that love has kind of four stages. And I think there's a will in here. Um, and you'll notice it's, the stages are put in a wheel because of a specific reason, but most relationships start with rapport building. Um, uh, and rapport building is basically the getting to know each other, understanding each other. And then we have a self 
revelation moment. The self-revelation moment is, wow, uh, I'm, I can see myself with this person, okay? And then from the self-revelation, we start to depend on each other because we see this mutual um, feelings and emotions that, 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 that uh, we see. And then there's what we call personality integration, okay? Um, in that we do see that uh, in a lot of relationships, not all, uh, the two partners tend to have similar personalities. As I mentioned in the research of people who are still in love after 30, 40 years, this is where one person says, this is what I'm good at. The other person says, this is what I'm good at. And together we work on the things we're both don't like or, or can't get. And this leads to need fulfillment. Okay, whoops, that should be a five, whoops. Okay. Now, the reason why it's put in a wheel is because Reese uh, noticed something that uh, is a mantra within the relationship field is that relationships and people change over time and that uh, you just don't fall in love with someone once, okay? Uh, probably one of the most famous terms that I always get when I'm reading the relationship uh, literature, especially for people who have been married for a long, long time and still love each other, is that it basically means that you fall in love with the same person over and over and over and over again. And that's what Reese's kind of said is, yes, we go through these stages but um, if we look at it, people should be going through these phases every four to six years because we change every four to six years in some way. We're not the same people we were four to six years ago. And that person wasn't the same person that they were four to six years before that. And so what Reese's research really says is that uh, going through these stages of relearning about each other, let's say in the second wheel around, relearning about each other, building of the relationship with each other again, realizing that, you know, I love these changes in this person or, or you know, I know that we're the same person, but these changes have, have changed. And then we build another mutual dependency on each other. And then we recognize how our personalities integrate again together. And then we get that need fulfillment. And then in another four to six years, we go through this process again. Now, the four to six years is, is average. There's a lot of variation. Um, I, I once uh, worked with a couple who had to fall in love with each other every about six to 12 months, it seemed like, because they were always coming up with things that, that were changing with each other. And it's understandable because they were a very young couple. They were very adventurous. Uh, they loved exploring the world. They loved reading about the world. So they were going through constant change. Um, and they did realize that they needed to, you know, read, fall in love with each other about every, it was like six to 12 months. Some other people that I know um, that I haven't worked with directly, uh, you know, I know that there's there's uh, couples who who have to at least every four years go on some different extreme adventure together. Well, um, 
and just do something that kind of unbinds them from what they've done in the past uh, so that they can start this rapport building, self-revelation, mutual and personality and need fulfillment, this cycle all over again. The thing that um, uh, Reese did find is that in order for these cycles to be fulfilled is the individual has to be honest with themselves, especially during self-revelation, is that you really have to decide, um, you know, am I trying to hold on to a person's past or do I really accept them for who they are now? And it's also having the insight about how I or the person has changed. And we find in a lot of ways that a lot of relationships, what Reese has found is that a lot of times this is where relationships end is because, um, uh, you know, the couple gets in arguments about you're not the same person you once were. Um, or the, the, they have this relationship idea that a relationship is a rock, it's unmovable. And so they find that they've changed, their partner has changed, um, and, and their relationship hasn't. And so they feel very disconnected. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who, going through divorces and stuff, literally uh, have stated that, you know, they woke up one morning and realized that they were sleeping next to a stranger, that they just didn't know that person anymore. And this happens during the self-revelation period. What Reese argued is if we can get beyond this, then we will go through the complete cycle all over again. But it is the self-revelation period that is really important. And that is also based on truthful rapport building. So th these two areas right here are really key to relationship success, getting to know each other again, and then really deciding if this person is the person you can fall in love with all over again, or if you're just so different that it's time to let that person go. Okay. Another, probably one of our older uh, psychological theories when we thought that love was more of an emotion than it was a drive comes from Sternberg's triangular theory of love. And really the reason why I feel Sternberg is still relevant today is because you'll find a lot of what he talks about or he talked about in relationship literature, in relationship, the way couples think about their relationship and so even though we see it more of a drive now than an emotion, these emotion theories still have some relevance, especially on the cultural level and on the individual level. So Sternberg argued that for love to happen, it has to have three important components. The first component is intimacy, which he defined as encompassing feelings of closeness, connectedness, and bonding. Um, one of the things that uh, we know happens biologically in a relationship, um, uh, and when you, you, you know, one of the signs that you're falling for someone deeply is that at some point, it seems like that that individual has always been in your life. 
So even if you met the person at the age of 35, over time, it seems like they were there in your 20s and in your teens and even into your childhood. And it, it seems like that they've always been there. Um, now, there is some biological underpinnings uh, for this. Um, uh, uh, but at this point, the important part is, is this is what intimacy for Sternberg was really trying to get at, is that there's just this close bond that it seems like you were always with that person. Um, Sternberg argued that passion is important, and this really leads to the, the, the physical attraction, the romance, and the sexual consummation of the relationship. Uh, um, this is where, you know, for example, why uh, friends who have been really close to each other, and maybe they have this intimacy bond, uh, but they tend to remain just friends, is because uh, for the intimate relationship, Sternberg argued that there has to be some type of passion, the need to be physical with the person and to have some type of romantic and sexual connection with them. And so in a lot of friendships, there can be an intimacy component. What makes it different than a romantic relationship is this notion of passion, this notion of desire, okay? The other thing that uh, Sternberg argued in the third component of his triangle is more of a cognitive one, meaning thought, um, meaning that uh, in, they have a decision or a commitment. They have a short and long-term dimension to the relationship. So they see themselves being in love now, but they also see themselves being in love uh, uh, 10 years from now. And so a couple makes a short-term commitment to love each other, which then can turn into a long-term commitment to stay in love with each other. So if we think about Sternberg, these are more, well, emotional, especially intimacy, and biological on the passion end. And I'll put B for biological. This one is more of a decision-making or a cognitive base, basis of uh, intimacy and relationships, okay? Oops. So when we look at Sternberg's theory, he, 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 he's, he argues that it's a mix of intimacy, passion, and commitment, but it can vary from one relationship to another. Uh, and so kind of as, as an example, if we look at his model here, if we have all three dimensions, okay, and they're all equal, uh, this, is, this is the perfect match, okay? If we're close, um, then, then, then it's also a, a good sign because then you can work towards bringing that perfect match together. And I think the point is, is that the closer these three match with each other, both the par both partners have these, the more closely bonded the individuals are going to have be. Okay, hold on. 
and, and then as we can see here at the bottom, if there's a severely mismatch, then uh, the couple tends to be very unhappy. So they might be physically um, uh, attached to each other, or they might make the decision to be married with each other, but it, it doesn't fully integrate. If you want to think about this in D, this would be in cultures where there's an arranged type of marriage. So uh, because a culture, they're both making a decision to be committed to each other, but right off the bat, the relationship is going to uh, lack intimacy and passion. But as Sternberg argues, sometimes if, if there's enough there, uh, uh, even arranged marriages can end up in, in, in the A box as an example. Um, we know that a lot of people can in B have a, have a lot of passion for each other uh, but if the intimacy and the decision making is off, then that that's going to wane over time, unless again it can be brought into uh, into um, alignment with each with with each other. And same with C as well. So all of these, um, you know, all of these have the potential to end up in a perfect match. But as we go down the row, it becomes harder and harder and harder. Okay. We also have uh, John Lee, who developed a mostly widely cited, studied, and theories of love. According to Lee, there are six basic styles of love. Eros, mania, luda, storage, agape, progama, and all which overlap. Okay, if, um, uh, what is the name of that book um, on styles of love? Uh, um, hold on just a second. Okay, I asked, okay. Um, that that book, Love Languages, which is very popular in, in, in the popular culture, is based on Lee's style of love. Um, and what Lee basically argued is that um, we have different types of styles of love. Uh, one is Eros, which is a love of beauty. And so that's physical attraction. Mania, which is obsessive love, and this is jealousy, possessiveness, and intense dependency on another person. He argued for ludus, which is playful love, which is carefree quality, casualness, fun, and game approach. And storch is companion love, which is peaceful, affectionate love based on mutual trust and respect. And about uh, agape is altruistic love, self-sacrifice, kindness, and patience for each other. And pragma is practical love, which is the sensible and realistic type of love. Whoops. And if we look at these, and I, I would be willing to bet that um, we're, we're, we're all kind of a combination of these six styles, okay? Because there are people who... Um, who are very self-sacrificing, but are very much into physical attraction 
as well. And so that would be an eros agape type of love. Um, the, the only two that really don't overlap very much is obsessive love and playful love. Uh, because you can't have a carefree casualness when you're intensely jealous or possessive of another individual. Um, companion love, we saw, uh, develops around the fourth to six years based on biology. So this has the potential to develop in all of us um, over a certain amount of time, okay? But the point of Lee's uh, styles of love theory is that we ha all have these different approaches based on different experiences we've had through life. And so some of us seek out physical attractiveness. Uh, some of us seek, seek out someone who is sensible and realistic. Um, and then we have different styles. We can be jealous and possessive based on, again, if we look at those insecure attachment styles. Um, and so that's kind of the idea behind Lee's six styles. And you'll see this a lot in the popular media. Like I said, uh, the, the book um, I just mentioned is based upon a lot of what Lee wrote about the different types of styles of love. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm going to stop here. And I'm going to ask, does anybody have any questions about those theories? I don't. I just thought it was very informative. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Agatha. Okay. Okay, I think this is where we can end here. I'm, I have one more lecture to do on love, but I hate to have it broken up between uh, fall break. So there is some more information I want to get up, go over. So we'll do that when we return from fall break. Um, because as I said, I, I want to give you Thursday off as well. So, um, uh, so just to kind of review, um, we've finished up with the theories. And then there's some more research stuff that we need to get into, which we'll hit uh, on the first week after spring break. I'm fall break, excuse me. Um, do keep in mind, uh, Yasmin, you weren't here at the beginning of class and when I was going over this. Do remember that our 45th day census is, is due um, uh, uh, neck on the 5th. That means faculty withdrawals have to be submitted I believe by this Thursday or Friday. And so if you are struggling in a class, but you want to stay in that class and be successful in it, please connect with your instructor and, 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 and so they don't withdraw you from a course from either being inactive or having a, a, um, a not high performing grades. So um, for my classes, um, I withdraw students who have a 50% or below, unless you get a hold of me and, and we talk, or if you've missed a lot of classes. So uh, that's kind of the policy I go by, and I think that's what a lot of faculty do. So just know that that's coming. Um, we are not going to have classes Thursday again, because I want people to take advantage of, of the, the, the cultural events this week for the college. And uh, also to give you some time to kind of prepare for fall break, 
do any missing work so that you can enjoy your fall break and, and prepare to come back. Um, as I said, starting after fall break, we'll start uh, reviewing some of those articles that were posted in Canvas. We'll get into, uh, we'll finish up the love stuff and really get into family and children and marriage uh, more in depth on a more literal basis. And then um, we'll be successful in the class and we'll go from there. So unless there's any question, let's go ahead and close it up for today. Um, and we'll see you all on October 11th, unless there's any questions. Nope. All right. No question. Thank all you. Right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You all have a wonderful fall break and enjoy the rest of the week. You too. You too. Thank you.